，鬼岛之音。Ghost Island Media. Today's episode is supported by the Institute for National Defense and Security Research in Taiwan, a think tank dedicated to fueling knowledge-based policy analyses and strategic assessments on Taiwan's security. Welcome to this new episode. Today, we'll talk the U.S.-China trade war and its impact on Taiwan. The world's two largest economies have been in conflict since last year, and there are no signs the tensions will ease anytime soon. The whole world is starting to feel the effects. A wide range of countries and businesses are now trying to figure out what their next move should be, in order not to be a casualty in this trade battle. Perhaps no country is feeling it quite as acutely as Taiwan. As the small nation's largest security supporter on the one side and its biggest trading partner on the other, arm wrestle, it seems the only thing we can be sure about in this ongoing trade battle is that it remains truly unpredictable. Amidst this uncertainty, how can players trapped in the middle make the most out of the situation they now find themselves in? These are global issues, and this is the Taiwan Take. My name is J.R. Wu, and I'm your host. Both got a force pressuring Taiwan investment in China, and a force pulling Taiwan investment into Taiwan. And the combination of those two things is having a virtuous impact on on Taiwan. To the extent that Taiwan Institute for Economic Research. Assesses that Taiwan GDP this year will grow by an additional 0.5 to 0.6 percent as a as a consequence of this dynamic. Today, we speak with Rupert Hammond Chambers, president of the U.S. Taiwan Business Council. We discuss the ongoing trade war, its effect on Taiwan, and how businesses in Taiwan are coping. Specifically, we'll be talking high tech. Which makes up a large part of the Taiwanese economy, and the difficult decisions this sector is making to adapt to the new business landscape. Welcome to the show, Rupert. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Now you're a familiar face to Taiwan, and you travel here regularly. What brings you to town this time? I think the timing and proximity of the election, January 11th. And an opportunity to undertake some political risk analysis on how the election is proceeding, and to engage a number of the companies that we work closely with here. Now, Rupert, I'm sure all our listeners have heard about the U.S.-Sino trade war, but can you give us a brief picture of what exactly we mean when we talk about it? Yeah, I get into a thought process about whether or not we should be calling it a war. When I think about war through my history books, I think about soldiers shooting things at each other, tanks and aeroplanes. I think I'm probably more comfortable describing it as trade confrontation. It started back. The path to this point started back in the late '90s and early 2000s. I would certainly argue that the U.S. business community overplayed its hand in respect to China. It was too close to the Chinese position and not. I, th- I think deferential enough to the interests of the United States,、um, as 
China move towards permanent normal trade relations with, uh, with the United States. And China acceded, as did Taiwan, almost at exactly the same time to the World Trade Organization, with the view and hope in the West that China would change politically, evolve in a more open, uh, democratic way. And of course, we haven't seen that. That has certainly caused some tensions. However, the allure of the China market remains. What has set in over the last 20 years is a more realistic appraisal of what that means to be in the China market. But I think of late politically in the United States, and let's say four or five years, it's become clearer that across the entire country, people are, are not happy with the way in which US-China economic relations have evolved, whether it's related to the theft of intellectual property and trade secrets, the trade imbalance. The view politically is, is that the trade relationship is out of balance and that something needed to be done. So the business community's view of China has shifted and then therefore as a consequence, how they advocate for US-China economic relations too has shifted. It's a far more sober assessment of what China represents, not this sort of Wild West pursuit of never-ending, ever-expanding profitability and profits in the market. And it's, it fits with, I believe, other assessments within the US government about Chinese behavior in the region, which relate to political behavior, uh, one belt, one road, and of course, the security and defense dimension that we see in the South China Sea, and of course, acutely here in the Taiwan Strait with Taiwan's own security. Now, with this trade confrontation, we certainly have felt much more of it since 2016, and we've seen countries in Asia in particular <clears throat> react differently to it. Everybody's much more aware of what's at stake when the two largest economies in the world, well, are arm wrestling, right? So how do you see China being changed by this trade war? I'm sorry, confrontation. <laughs> um, meaning its tactics and approach to resolving this trade dispute. Do you see it changing its ways? Well, I think China is changing. I think under the president, excuse me, he's not president, but under the, the leadership of the general secretary, Xi Jinping, China is heading in a, a significantly more conservative direction in respect to internal control, control over the means of production and the economy, a directional shift that really started to take place dramatically when he secured complete control, sort of 2012, 2013. And that has, I believe, caused some challenges internally for China which the trade confrontation between the US and China has really brought to the forefront. I would argue that what the tariff challenge has created for China was it, it was like a, a punch, if you will. But what it's really teased out is that China has some fairly significant structural challenges to deal with at the moment. A shift away from a more entrepreneurial, private sector-driven economy back towards one where the focus is more on state-owned enterprises and state control over, over the economy. And then issues related to environmental challenges. They've got disruption, obviously, down in Hong Kong, which is a political issue. Um, there's been a convergence of issues in China that are causing the leadership some challenges. I would argue also that even if the tariff issues are addressed over the next 6 to 12 months, China's going to continue to experience economic challenges related to the structural problems within the country 
and less related to the challenges that came from the from the tariffs. So, Rupert, you've been here for about a week. You've been talking to a lot of different Taiwanese counterparts, Taiwan tech firms. What do you see Taiwanese tech companies doing to cope, mitigate in this trade confrontation? Yeah. For Taiwan businesses, they don't want to give up access to the China market. But in the tech space, what we're going to see is China and the United States and the West, I think, divvy up markets where there's some sensitivity about the technology that's being deployed. Huawei and 5G is a perfect example. That's, that's where the battle is right now. So Taiwan companies will return to Taiwan in some instances. It's not that they're destroying their facilities in China. Those will exist. But we are seeing, let's say, $10. This is actually right. If you look at the MOEA data from two years ago, if $10 were being applied generally to foreign direct investment, $7 from Taiwan were going to the China market. Now, today, we're talking about $3.50. The other $3.50 of that seven is now mostly coming back into Taiwan or going down into Southeast Asia. So that's Ministry of Economic Affairs data from Taiwan yes. that you've just cited. Yes, exactly. And that, that trend is about political risk. Most supply chain companies are, have been happy not to participate in public policy. But this trade confrontation has smacked them over the head with rather large stick. Most of them are realizing now that they can't sit out the politics of and the pressures that are in the trade relationship. They have to pay more attention to this. Do you think one lasting outcome of this trade confrontation is that more companies come back to Taiwan or they come back to Taiwan regularly? I mean, how does any country make the most from a situation like this? Yeah, it's it's fascinating. There are certainly winners in the trade confrontation at the moment. The Wall Street Journal did an extremely good article. This was several months ago about trade foreign direct investment flows. And they pulled together some data which showed that Vietnam was the primary beneficiary. But number two was Taiwan. And the the redirection of the supply chain, the adjustments taking place in the supply chain, because Taiwan is such a critical player in the supply chain, Taiwan businesses, when they assess political risk, they're looking at saying, well, political risk in China has risen significantly. So we need to address that by potentially spreading our risk out of China. Now, when you say supply chain, what does that mean? I mean, original design manufacturers, original equipment manufacturers, the systems integrators that make our laptops, that make the telephones across the board, as well as suppliers who then follow them. So we look around the rest of the region or the rest of the world. Well, where is the least political risk in a time where there's some turbulence? Well, home represents stability. And the Tsai government has done a a relatively good job of incentivizing that returning capital. So you've both got a force pressuring Taiwan investment in China and a force pulling Taiwan investment into Taiwan. And the combination of those two things is having a virtuous impact on, on Taiwan to the extent that the Taiwan Institute for Economic Research assesses that Taiwan GDP this year will grow by an additional 0.5 to 0.6% as a consequence of this dynamic. So are you going to talk a little bit about what kind of businesses are coming back, large scale, medium scale? The businesses that are returning right now are mostly the largest supply chain businesses. 
That's what we're seeing. Not exclusively, but they're the ones that where the, they have the biggest sort of headline investment numbers. So if you have a company like Honhai Foxconn, they'll set up production and then you'll have a number of companies that'll cluster around them. So I think that's certainly part of it, although I'm not aware of Honhai, any, any significant investments as a consequence of this back in the Taiwan from Honhai. Um, you certainly have a lot, a large number of companies coming back, and they're they're mostly of the larger variety, not the, the medium and smaller size. The smaller and medium sized companies, they'll continue to cluster. They're also in China to service the China market, right? So they're there because they're servicing a market that's not going away, irrespective of the tensions between the United States and China. Taiwan businesses are going to remain hugely active in the PRC, as they should. As long as the technology is not is not sensitive, if I could, I'd like to sort of raise an, an issue where I, I do think there's going to be a challenge for Taiwan moving forward post the election. As Mr. Obama famously said, elections have consequences. I think the Taiwan election has consequences um, in respect to the the leaning, the political orbit that Taiwan heads towards, whether it's Kuomintang and a slightly China centric set of policies. Or DPP, which is more U.S. Western orientated set of policies. What I believe we're going to continue to see is issues, technology issues, pop up, like Huawei and 5G in the future. We can't predict them yet, but they will come. And given Taiwan's importance in the supply chain in the global technology community generally, there will be some aspect of it that will impact Taiwan. How will the sitting Taiwan government deal with that? When that comes along, there will be a pull both from Washington D.C. as well as from Beijing for Taiwan to make decisions that better favor China over the United States or vice versa. And how Taiwan handles that will be important. Who's in charge in Taiwan will inform us somewhat of which way they will be more inclined to lean. And in the domestic level here in Taiwan, you'll have domestic constituencies. Some Taiwan companies involved in this hypothetical will be more favorable towards China. They will see China as the future, and other Taiwan companies will see the U.S. and they will pressure internally in the country here to have that outcome. So I think we're going to continue to see complexities in the ongoing trade confrontation and open-ended trade confrontation that will create challenges for Taiwan politically. Hey. We're a young media startup called Ghost Island Media. To get every episode of the Taiwan Take, just hit subscribe on your podcast app. Do you have a tip for us? For news tips, tweet at us at Ghost Island Me. For dollar tips, we take those too. Send them to us on Patreon.com/Taiwan. Back to our interview. The U.S.-Taiwan Business Council looks also particularly at high tech as well. You look at it through the Taiwan-China-U.S. nexus. So, in your LinkedIn, you wrote recently, and I have to confess, Rupert, I do follow your LinkedIn. Thank LinkedIn. you. I appreciate it. I have one follower. So much you wrote before. So much is discussed about Taiwan's importance. However, what is rarely fully appreciated is how important the island's chip industry is to the world, and at the heart is TSMC. 
you've said before, it's not just the economics of the company, but its IP and its integration into the global supply chains that make it a major national security concern for all trading economies. That sounds dire. Rupert, break it down for us, starting with what is TSMC? TSMC is the most important technology company in the world. I know that sounds like a big statement to make, but I absolutely believe that because it produces chips in the fabulous space. For your listeners to grasp a little bit of what that might mean, um, in the past, companies that design chips would also manufacture them. But the cost of manufacturing is extremely expensive. A modern semiconductor facility now, cutting edge, costs about $10 billion to build. So for a company that wanted had a need for a semiconductor chip or wished to design one for production, the cost of making them was prohibitive if you had to build your own fab. What uh, Taiwan has done, the vision for Taiwan, Morris Zhang, who founded Taiwan Semiconductor, was an industry where Taiwan Semiconductor would be formed and they would do the contract manufacturing for the chip design. So people could focus on designing chips, but Taiwan Semiconductor would take care of the manufacturing. Now, when you talk about Taiwan Semiconductor, that's your short term of saying TSMC. Correct. Excuse me. And they have built an absolute empire out of creating this environment. You still have the Intels of the world who produce, or Qualcomm, they produce their chips. But, well, Qualcomm has TSMC to produce the chips, but the Intel of the world. Um, But mostly the direction of the industry is for contract manufacturing where companies are focusing on design and TSMC will do the manufacturing. In the TSMC environment, the fabulous environment industry, Taiwan Semiconductor is 50% of the market. And that's the market that's growing rapidly while the rest of the market is dissipating. Consider what you buy and how much of that has a semiconductor chip in it, right? And the direction that we're heading in our lives and in a networked world, right? IoT, AI, and so on, these buzz terms that we read about, but perhaps we can't fully wrap ourselves around conceptually because uh, the future is yet to be written. But I think we can rest assured that what will connect us will have a chip in it. And I would argue that Taiwan Semiconductor will be manufacturing most of those chips. I remember when I was a journalist, I used to cover TSMC. It has one of the best corporate governance uh, rankings, I believe, in the industry. I remember when uh, their quarterly investor earnings conference rolled around. Everybody would go early to get a good seat. And if Mr. Morris Chong was going to chair it, all the reporters had their computers ready to go to take his uh, sentences verbatim. He was and is such a visionary in this industry. Yeah. He, without question, Morris is one of the most important technology entrepreneurs and leaders the world has seen in the last 50 years. And that's saying something. In my opinion, he's up there with Bill Gates, Gordon Moore, and others who have created a subset, a subsector within the overall technology industry that has allowed the sort of rapid innovation that we've seen and benefited from mostly. I will say uh, this and actually uh, bounce it off of you. What do you think? Somebody said to me once that, you know, if there was a conflict that happened in Taiwan, the safest place to be is not a bunker. You stand right next to a TSMC factory. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. Go down to Shinju, (laughs) find one of the fabs. They're all over the place and stand right next door to it. It does raise an interesting issue in respect to security. There's a growing debate in the United States about the viability of America's own access to high-quality chip production. 
because the U.S. isn't building fabs like Taiwan is. Taiwan Semiconductor, and this is public information, will build or start to build 12 fabs over the next five years in Tainan and Shinju. Those fabs will be at five nanometer and three nanometer. That's the most cutting edge level for them. And it's a massive capital investment. We are talking about tens of billions of dollars to build those fabs. Those are U.S. dollars. Correct. Thank you. So in the States, when you think about it, well, Taiwan is obviously an important friend of the United States, as it is with many countries in the world. And the semiconductor industry is an industry in an economic sense, but it is strategic as well because of the importance of chips, not just in commercial devices as well, but in military and security platforms as well. Access to production at those highest levels is a security concern as well. You also want to make sure that when you buy a chip, it works. The illegal manufacturing of chips, counterfeit chips, is also a challenge. So you need supply chain integrity to ensure that what you think you're buying is, in fact, what you're buying. Um, so Taiwan's importance is manifest in many different areas. But in the semiconductor industry, it's extremely important. It's not just a commercial relationship. It's strategic. If it's in China's orbit, China controls Taiwan Semiconductor and the direction and the technology. And how do we... F- put all this in the context of the trade confrontation going on now? I actually don't think of the trade confrontation now as an issue of trade balance and tariffs. I, th- I believe that it quickly evolved into a confrontation over the future of technology. That's really what the Huawei issue is all about. Huawei makes lots of different things, but at the heart is the 5G platform that will cover the world and dramatically improve and expand the sorts of services that we sit on that infrastructure, who will control it? It's a huge economic opportunity, and it's a huge national security issue as well. That's what the United States is certainly grappling with, and it sees Huawei both as a commercial challenge but also as a security challenge. Um, So in respect to the trade confrontation, we have morphed now, I think, into a narrative that is focused on the tech challenge and the tech confrontation. I think we're sort of moving away from now trade imbalances and uh, foreign direct investment flows. Now, earlier you had said one of your concerns about this dispute going on is that IP may fall by the wayside once things are resolved regarding the tariffs. Why is that important? Can you talk a little bit about how China protects IP or doesn't? Yeah. Intellectual property is the most, most valuable commodity in the world. Let's start with Taiwan in the, into the answer to that question, and then, we, and then we'll migrate to China. The United States and companies that, countries excuse me, that held intellectual property for a long time wrestled with Taiwan over IP because up to the mid-2000s, Taiwan also had a reputation as an intellectual property violator. What happened critically here in Taiwan was Taiwan companies started to develop intellectual property that had value and they wanted it protected. So you had an external voice in the United States and to some extent the Europeans arguing that Taiwan should improve intellectual property enforcement, trade secrets enforcement. But it wasn't really until the domestic constituency started to stand up. Companies like Taiwan Semiconductor, Acer and others who have their own intellectual property who, was, who were demanding that Taiwan enforce improve and then enforce its own laws. And 0305, we saw a series of important legislation here in Taiwan. And Taiwan now has some of the best intellectual property and trade secrets legislation, as well as enforcement in the entire region. 
If you look at what's happened in China, you still have a laissez-faire attitude towards intellectual property and widespread theft, state-orchestrated theft of intellectual property, not just individual companies going out and stealing it, but the state itself organizing and orchestrating theft of important intellectual property, whether for industries or for security, it doesn't really matter. In the end, the impact is still the same. You also have, for companies that want to enter the market, the state insisting that there is some degree of intellectual property and technology transfer into China is if the company is to participate in China. But that's not just unique to China. Other countries, particularly trying to ramp up their own industries, want a little bit of transfer sharing, transfer know-how. That is true. What China has, however, is scale in its market. It also has the capacity that other countries do not to take that intellectual property, stand up a business on the back of it, and then manufacture that intellectual property at a lower cost than anybody else, which puts the original developer of the intellectual property under threat. That's something that another country, most other countries are unable to do. That's the important differentiator. So IP protection is essential. Trade secrets protection is essential. And by extension, a legal infrastructure to ensure that people, when they go from one company to another company, do not walk with intellectual property as well. That is also a massive problem. It's a big challenge here in Taiwan, of course, too, because you have so many Taiwan citizens working in the PRC. Can you talk a little bit about how you see the U.S. and China dealing with this, how they will come to a resolution. I mean, I'll be honest, I just got back from Thailand. And uh, as our institute has been looking at this issue as well, we spoke with some of these Taiwanese companies who have expanded to Southeast Asia. And one takeaway we got when we were speaking with executives based in Thailand, but very familiar with the landscape here, is that in the short term, there's a lot of opportunities for business in this trade confrontation. You can't go through China anymore. You need to uh, avoid the tariffs. Hell, let's open something in Southeast Asia or some contemplate moving back to America. Um, but the overall bottom line for the executives when they were saying uh, the final uh, wish they had is that they want this resolved because global demand is falling and their revenue is not looking really good for this second half of 2019. Uh, so what I'm, I guess what I'm asking, Rupert, is, you know, the U.S. and China, can they resolve this on each side? What should they be doing or have they been doing? Mm. So it's a, it's a great question. It's a very big question as well. In the short term, certainly they can reach agreements. Mr. Trump and the Chinese have been talking about a phase one agreement that may potentially be signed. My understanding from public commentary recently this week is that they're struggling with some of the final issues, which is often how negotiations are handled, right? You deal with the easier stuff first. So for sure, we, we could probably see a phase one agreement. The United States perhaps would get some increased agricultural purchases, some indication of some of the outstanding trade issues, although I certainly worry that core issues surrounding intellectual property and trade secrets violations and theft by China will, will still be left unaddressed. And for the Chinese, they get some stability and tariff reduction, which surely would help in the short term some of the macroeconomic issues they're facing. But in the longer term, JR, I don't believe that 
tensions between the US and China are going to tick back down again. I feel that we are in a new phase now. I don't want to call it a cold war. I think that's a sort of lazy um trawling in history to try and find some way to say this is what's happening now is like what happened before. This is unique. China is not the Soviet Union and vice versa and and the the challenges that they represent to the West and to the United States specifically are different. But in the longer term I believe tensions will remain. And you know, you point to changes in within China. I I don't believe that the economic model that the Chinese are pursuing is compatible with good strong economic relations with the United States for two primary reasons. It's internally it will it will create anti-competitive environments where state-owned enterprises will be prioritized over private enterprise. So that negatively impacts foreign companies as well as actually private Chinese companies. Um well you know what Rupert China uh, Xi Jinping he <clears throat> wants to sit this whole thing and wait and wait in hopes that maybe Donald Trump doesn't get reelected. Is there a chance that we all go back to status quo? The trade confrontation just kind of fizzles out as election and in the US potential impeachment inquiry takes over. And then we're back at the same place we all started in. Yeah. I don't think there's any chance of that at all, candidly. Why not? The overall view within the United States, the consensus view across the board from a political standpoint is the United States has to readdress the relationship with China, uh, particularly on the economic front. And for both parties, that's a political imperative. It's a practical imperative. If they want to win elections, they're going to have to continue to pay attention to this issue. President Trump's tariff approach is controversial certainly. It's also highly supported in some areas and it's certainly supported in a bipartisan way by both Democrats and Republicans. That's why you have Chuck Schumer cheering on President Trump, even encouraging him to be even more hawkish on economic matters. So if Mr. Trump were to lose next November's election, then um I would expect Democrats, I would expect some adjustment, that's not untypical, but I would I would still expect Democrats to be fairly hawkish towards towards China on trade related matters. If there's an, a political change there'll be some shift but overall I believe the confrontation will remain tensions will remain high. So pretty much Xi Jinping who is now leader for life in China he shouldn't expect that the next US president may give him an easier go. I don't think so at all. I would also perhaps challenge a little bit something you just said as well as you suggested that he might have time to wait all of this out and while it's extremely hard to assess the inner workings of the leadership within the PRC and particularly within the CCP the Chinese Communist Party when we look at external events we look at macroeconomic challenges within China there is pressure on Mr Xi and he by consolidating power around himself it's harder for him to hand out responsibility when things get harder So there's much more focus on him as the sort of focal point for responsibility for where China is at this juncture. Deng Xiaoping, Deng Xiaoping preached keep a low profile, right? Develop the economy and keep a low profile. Well, Mr. Xi has gone in quite a different direction. My goodness, Rupert, thank you so much for taking the time to offer your insights with us, but before you go, tell us about what is coming up at the US Taiwan Business Council. 
Yeah, thank you very much. We are focused at the moment on several delegations that we'll bring to Taiwan. Our chairman, Mike Splinter, who sits on the board of Taiwan Semiconductor and was the former chairman of Applied Materials, the largest semiconductor equipment company in the world. Mike will lead a delegation to Taiwan, our annual chairman's delegation in early February. About 25 or 30 U.S. companies will will be part of Mike's delegation. We'll meet with the leadership, president-elect, whether it's Tsai Ing-wen, Hang Wo-yu, James Sung, and uh, some of the government leadership at a cabinet level. We're also looking at a delegation in pharmaceutical and healthcare for March. And then in the springtime in May, we do an annual defense delegation. And defense industry, of course, is an important area of cooperation between the U.S. and Taiwan. It's growing rapidly. And of course, the United States remains Taiwan's indispensable security partner. So there'll be a large conference likely in Taichung focused on aerospace-related matters sometime in early May. So we have a busy first six months. And one other point I would make is that after the election, of course, Taiwan has a long sort of lame duck period between the election and the inauguration, May 20th. But there will be a tremendous amount of political jockeying going on at that time. And there'll be a lot of questions in the United States about what that means for America, American relations with Taiwan, and to help our companies. And when I say constituents, I mean the people that we work with in different institutions and think tanks and the US government to help them think through and understand what sort of impact it'll have on the commercial relationship between the two. Gosh, it sounds like we will definitely see you again, Rupert. Rupert Hammond Chambers, president of the U.S.-Taiwan Business Council. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure being here. I'm J.R. Wu, and this has been The Taiwan Take. This has been a Ghost Island Media production based in Taipei, Taiwan. This episode was produced and edited by me, Emily Waiwu. Our researchers are Sam Robbins and Yu Chen Lai. Additional production support by Allison Chan. Brand design by Thomas Lee. Catch you next time. Bye.